Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hi, this is Corner Table, and I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. If you have questions or comments about our show, you can always reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So having spent decades in the restaurant business between New York and Los Angeles, I've had the good fortune of meeting some great people. And when you've been around as long as I have, you get to watch the trajectory of their lives. Even if the conversations were limited, there is still a bond or a connection formed in the pleasantries and few moments of conversation over the years. My guest today has almost every award an actor can have, including an Academy Award, Golden Globe, and four Emmy Awards. To put it in numbers, she has 107 nominations at last count. That might change. I don't know. 107 and 59 wins. That's a That's a better than 50% win average, which I think is pretty good. Her feature film directorial debut garnered awards and plenty more nominations, including three Academy Award nominations. She made history as the first Black female director to debut a film at the 77th Annual Venice International Film Festival. One Night in Miami was the film. And of course, I am talking about one of the most in-demand people in Hollywood, the lovely and so very talented Regina King. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. Hello, Brad Johnson. (laughs) Wow. That was quite the introduction. I don't think I've Heard my batting average before. (laughs) So, Regina, I kick things off with what I call short order questions. Just a few things to fire at you and get your your quick response. So tell me, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? Hmm, In heavy rotation on my playlist. You know, it's funny because I'm still like listening to, you know, the classics. I was just listening to a played on my Spotify, Brand New Heavies. I hadn't listened to Brand New Heavies in a while. And so uh day before yesterday, uh I was had that back in my rotation. I'm sure that there's someone current right now that I think is awesome, but they're not coming to mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind rediscovering. I rediscovered some old Tower of Power a couple of oh. weeks ago on Spotify, man. And it was like, I I had, it was hearing it for the first time driving around and hearing that the Lenny Williams vocals and those horns again, it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think the thing that's so interesting is that a lot of the artists that I feel like I'm so familiar with, I am still discovering songs by them that I'd never heard before. Like this um, Carlos Santana, a piece that he did to, I think it was for the um, one of the songs in Spartacus, in the film Spartacus, and had never heard his version of that before. And that's exciting for me when that happens because it feels still like new music. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'm with you there. Regina, what is your morning routine? My morning routine is to get up, not a full stretch situation, but just, you know, I'm, I've reached a certain age that I have to kind of warm up the the body that's been in one position for the past five or six hours. And uh, so kind of just like touch my toes and do that stretch where you hear a couple, you know, cracks happen and then make a cup of tea. 
I don't brush my teeth until after I have my tea. That's probably nasty to some people, but the taste of toothpaste and tea don't really go together. No, not at all. And, I, and I'm with you on the slow, easy, out of bed. Don't want to pull anything. <laughs> right? I still feel young. Yeah. But it's just when you do get hurt, the recovery rate is not the same. Not the same. No. And we cannot afford to be on the sidelines for too long. So, yeah. Tell me your favorite weekend breakfast. Well, my favorite weekend breakfast that I make, and I really hate the favorites thing because what could be favorite for me right now may not be favorite in like a month. But right now in this moment, a favorite, um, I make waffles with a banana walnut uh, syrup and chicken sausage. Mm. That's my favorite. And if I'm feeling, you know, real jazzy, it goes, I'll just match that sugar from the syrup with sugar uh, from a mimosa. <laughs> Why not? If it's a sugary breakfast, we might as well, right? <laughs> Why, not? Why not? All right. So best live musical performance you've ever seen. Ooh, that is tough. Best live musical performance I've ever seen, ever Ever, ever? I don't know. Maybe, maybe Duran Duran or maybe Prince. It's, it's tough because Duran Duran was like the first like concert I saw of just an artist that's like internationally known. And I was young. I was probably like 14, 15 years old. So that just really stuck with me. And then Prince just, I mean, Prince. Yeah. There's just not a moment when I wasn't singing along or wasn't just in awe of just his stage presence or the piano that was lifting up. It was just, it was like he had just like just enough theatrics, but it was all him. Mm. It was just. So I would say those two, because the Duran Duran has uh, more of that meaning for me that made me very clear that I love seeing live music yeah. in, 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 in a space that, you know, because it's one thing seeing live music in something small or quaint, you know, and it's another thing seeing live music in a big, I'm saying arena, you know, this is not like Wembley Stadium, but, you know, seeing a concert in Hollywood Bowl or the Greek, and then you go, no, no, no shade to the old forum. But when you see a concert at the old forum and then see a concert at the bowl or the Greek, it's just a whole new meaning. And Duran Duran was like, that for me. Yeah. You know, I haven't been to uh, the new SoFi Stadium, but I've talked to a few friends who have been to concerts there. In fact, one just saw the Rolling Stones and they said the acoustics and the sound was just incredible. I've only been there for a game. I haven't been there for a show. So I wasn't really paying attention to the acoustics at the game. No, but you were doing your fair shouting, I would imagine. Or are you a quiet spectator? I was a quiet spectator because the Rams are my team because it's L.A., it's not really my, they are not really my football team from coming up to now. Okay. All right. Well, that takes me to my next question. Lakers or Clippers? Oof. 
Yeah. <laughs> Lakers. Oh. I laugh at Clipper fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's cold. All right. Where have you not been that is high on your list to travel to? Thailand. Okay. Yes, that is super high on my list. Everyone that I know that I trust their opinion who is gone, um, it makes me more excited about when I'll actually carve out the time to go. And um, the images are beautiful and I love Thai food. And one of the things with travel that's a big deal for me traveling abroad is food, mm -hmm. you know, to, to experience the culture through the food. I love food, as do you, Mr. Johnson. Yes. And uh, I, I love Thai food. I love, I'm, I, I kind of... Um, lean towards the Asian cuisine. I went to uh, Bangkok maybe 20 years ago and uh, I was blown away by the street food and corn on the cob on the street was just so, it was incredible. And I, I ate so much mm -hmm. corn on the cob. I don't think I ate that much corn on the cob in my life, but I was killing it. <laughs> Regina, the best advice you've been given? You know, I keep saying this thing because I um, ask this question often and I'm always so cagey when it comes to advice because sometimes I feel like when, even though the question is asked, what's the best advice I've been given? I always feel like, especially now we're in this cancel culture mm. that, you know, people um, miss that it was the best advice for me or one of the things that stuck uh, for me. And uh, it's two things. Uh, one, my mom always would stress something that she called the seven P's, proper prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. As a child, it was annoying hearing that all the time. But once I became a young, a young adult, I totally understood from an experiential place how um, preparation led to greater success. Mm -hmm. So it was like that bit of advice made me as, as a young adult understand that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Absolutely. Um, finish this sentence for me, if you would. I have little patience for. People that belittle children. Because I feel like when, when you see people do that to other adults, people do that to other adults that they see they can do that too, you know, that they can get away with it, but they don't do that. People that are belittling adults, majority of people, no matter how much of an asshole you may be, you don't do that to all adults. You gauge that situation. You do whatever it is, that psyche, that psychological thing you do in your head to determine, okay, this is a person I can get away with this with. But when people do that to children, they're doing that to children because they know children usually can't fight back. They can't talk back. They can't say no. They can't demand the respect. I don't think those are really good people. And, and I really try not to be um, of the thought of that all people are good or bad because I do feel like we're all a spectrum. You know, we are, for the most part, I think good people who do things that may be bad or do things that may be thoughtless, 
So I try not to put people in a good or bad box. You know, some people do uh, land in there, but people who are um, who knowingly just disrespect children, I, I don't. They go in the bad box to me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, there there are rules to the road. I mean, we're all learning, but uh, some things we have, you know, little to no tolerance for. And I'm with you on that. So last last one of these, Regina, who past or present would you most like to have at an intimate dinner party? Hmm. Only one person? It's your show. You can we could sit here all day. You could name a hundred if you like. <laughs> You'd be like, okay, and our show is wrapping up, and Regina said nine hundred names. That's always tough. I guess it would be Shirley Chisholm. I'm preparing to play her. And as I'm studying her, I just would really, really would want to just get in her mind and see. Uh, it's very interesting watching uh, how calculated she is when she speaks and when she's um, delivering um, a message, whether it's in an interview or on stage. So I, I would want to know a little more about the uh, the brain, the the uh, the genius behind that. And um, maybe Shirley, um, I probably always would want my mother at the table. I guess my mom, Shirley and me would be a pretty enlightening, empowering, soul feeding conversation. Yeah, no doubt. And I saw that uh, that's a film that you have slated coming up that you're going to be starting soon. And I want to get into that a little bit later. Another Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, uh, homegrown lady there. A lot of, lot of talent comes out of, uh, of Bed-Stuy. So we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. So before we go any further, how, how are you? How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Yes. I'm well. Okay, good. Well, thank you for making the time. I know we were a little persistent. Ambassador Shabazz was on it. You were probably like, damn, what does this brother want? <laughs> Why are they staying after me? So thank you for, for making the time. I, I appreciate it. Can I ask, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Regina. I'm, I'm doing well. You know, managing uh, the, the craziness of the last couple of years. I mean, I think it's an easy, quick answer to say I'm good. You know, it can be a little deeper than that. But, uh, you know, I woke up this morning and the sun was out and my eyes were seeing, my ears were hearing, my legs were working. So, you know, in, in that respect, and my family's good. So, so thank you for asking. So there are a lot of really nice things being said about you. Accolades are flowing. And I wanted to kick things off with a quote from October's Vanity Fair. And if somehow anyone in the audience out there missed this, Regina King graced the cover of Vanity Fair in October. And Regina, the photo was just absolutely stunning. I mean, you look beautiful. Congratulations on the cover. And were you happy with the experience? Were you happy with the result? Did you like the, the photo? Well, I, I didn't dislike the photo. I just was very clear of when I look at my face up close on that photo, there just doesn't quite look like me. And, you know, perhaps that's just self-perception. I don't think so, but it could be. Uh, but what I was really happy with is the time I was able to have with the journalist, the writer, Jasmine Ward, um, who uh, I believe it was Jasmine mm -hmm. uh, that uh, wrote that piece. And 
being, um, she's such a wonderful writer. And you always wonder after you've done a lot of interviews, you know, for a, a piece in, in, in a magazine or paper or whatever, you know, how is someone going to make it different? How, because I'm such a guarded person and, you know, I tend to cut to 10 years later, if you're asking a question that still pertains to something that I still feel that way, I will give the same response. So, you know, I was really, I'm always curious to see what a writer's approach is going to be. And I just found with Jasmine that, um, one, it was very conversational and we were able to touch on in spaces that we both uh, have the same experience, but also different experience because we grew up in different places. And I just found that once I did read her piece that I felt like that conversational, that aspect of, of, of the interview, it, it informed the article. I felt like she was speaking about me through us. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it just had a, I just felt connected to it in a way that I've never really felt before because I, it's hard to read about yourself and the way her, her prose allowed me to feel almost as if I was reading about someone else, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it, it makes total sense. And let me read uh, an excerpt from what she wrote. Uh, and the writer, as you mentioned, her name is Jasmine Ward. And she had this to say, quote, I was a child the first time I saw Regina King on screen, and she was a child too. The first thing I noticed about her character, Brenda Jenkins on Room 227, was that she looked like me. She wore her hair the way I did, large bangs falling across her forehead, top pulled back in a ponytail. Through King, Brenda was the real deal. She was frank and inappropriate and funny and oblivious and messy and naive. She was genuine. There was much about her that I wanted for myself, most notably the ability to speak plainly from her perspective to adults, which was something I never saw in my world. Every time I see King on screen, she is real and immediate. So, you know, to what you just said, Regina, and, you know, I, I think about this generally when I think about you is I think one of your most appealing qualities, and this is tricky as an actor, right? I would imagine because you're playing different characters, but somehow there's this, there's this realness that you bring that is just you, you know? And I think it just really resonates. And, and Jasmine, you know, she seemed to be saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess just as an actor, and I've talked to other actors, I've even, I think I've heard a couple other actors who've expressed this same feeling about how we approach or receive, um, how we approach our art, how we receive our art. And it's, while they're different characters, I think the thing that I do, we do, is find Regina within that character so that it is rooted in truth. So it's not so much, I don't want to say 
okay, I'm playing, you know, Angela Abar, Abar in Watchmen. And I'm, I, I'm not saying that it's Angela Abar as Regina, but there's got to be something that I connect with in that character, even if it's not really a good person that I understand, that I understand intrinsically to embody that character, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And, you know, you've been doing this for a while, so I, I think you you understand um, your method. And I wanted to connect that to, you know, my dad was a, was a restaurateur and did well for a portion of his life, but success didn't happen overnight. And he would often say of his success, man, I didn't get this from no hit record, you know, and when I, when I think about you, I think about, you know, I mean, you worked obviously very early on, you know, as a young person, but to be experiencing the level of success that you are now, clearly you didn't just get this from no hit record. You know, you have put in some time and, you know, some years into this business. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting, Brad, that you bring that up because I feel like there was a part of me, um, maybe as recent as five years ago, where just something switched for me that I would, you know, kind of be very humble and not, and no thank you and, and, and not really acknowledge for myself even that, wait a minute, no, I should be here. I have done the work to be here. I should be here. And I and and I would say like around five years ago or so, I started embracing that and embracing that in a way that it's still, I, that I think in my mind, I felt like a bit of that thought process could come off as um, conceit or um, not express or lacking humility. And, and a few years ago, I, I just, I realized that that doesn't lack humility. Actually, it's, the opposite. If I'm not really um, in tune with my personal human experience, then um, it is going to lack humility. So it, it, in all actuality, me kind of playing that back was just not fair, period. I have done the work to be where I am and I continue to do it. And I should be able to say that. And I do say that now with gratitude and with pride. And, you know, I, I think, Regina, to, to your point, I mean, there it's so transparent what I would, you know, consider to be a, a level of false humility, right? When you see people that have just continued to win and continue to do great, and then, you know, they, they pretend to not own it, but yet you really know that they do, you know? And I wonder, that that's not you. I think what you just said is you, that you realized at a certain point that, you know, you needed to own that. You had, you had earned it. You were going to own it, acknowledge it, be humble and grateful. You can be all those things, but acknowledging it, I think, is important. So here's something that you said from a couple of years ago. I was just going to read to you and just get, you know, get your reaction. You said, it's very cool uh, to be my age and have this be new. Having this experience now, I see a whole nother regard for film. I love being an actor. It just feels good being Regina King. So what is the other regard um, you're, you're referring to for film? And, you know, you, you strike me as someone who's just always been comfortable in your skin. I've been acquainted with you for, for many years. I've never felt 
from anything that I've experienced with you that you weren't comfortable in your own skin, but you're saying something different here. You're talking about it feels good to be Regina King and this this experience that you're having now and seeing film differently. What what are you talking about there? Can you break that down a little bit? I mean, my guess is that hearing it out of context that I was speaking about my relationship with storytelling since I've become a director. And uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking. And, and in just um, while I don't, I'm not necessarily interested in directing something that I'm acting in again, I do feel like this past 10 years or 12 years of directing has just opened me up in a way uh, when it comes to expression and also receiving. That feels new in, in a lot of ways uh, because um, as a director, oh, I feel like I am just learning every moment, learning something about myself, learning something about other people, learning uh, new ways of communication, learning um, how to not let go of an old way of communication, keep that right there on the side because this actor here does not uh, bode well with communicating in this style. So let me hold that and say that communication for this is just really fascinating uh, how much uh, psychology goes into, honestly, the whole production experience, mm-hmm. the whole storytelling experience. You know, as a director, I'm just, uh, I don't know, I, as an actor, uh, I'm fo- focused on my character and focused on perhaps maybe what that character's journey is in relation to another character as well as my character. But as a a director, I am just involved in the entire process and having deeper conversations with the production designer or wardrobe designer or the prop master that I did not have before as an actor. Mm -hmm. And so these past, you know, 10 or 12 years, it's definitely been just, just, it's, it's been, it's been rewarding and it continues to feel new. Yeah. You know, each project. You know, listening to you describe that, I mean, it just sounds like the, um, the scale and the scope of observation that factors into your work as a director is just, I mean, it, it's everything, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're looking at the entire process as, as an actor. You're you know concerned about your performance, of course, the other actors around you or the set or the light that you feel comfortable in. But as the director, it's 360. Yes, yes, absolutely that. It, it's 360. It's there is something so galvanizing about, you know, the writer writes this script and then you see it. And then there's some things that you feel like if we think maybe this scene should go so that this scene here really lands or that this scene, maybe we want her voice to be maybe not as bold because we want to build up to something later on and the payoff will be better. And then, so we have that. And then... I take all of those thoughts that I'm seeing when it comes to creating the tone, the landscape, and then bring those thoughts and ideas to my DP and production designer. And then they go off and then they come back with 
more of their ideas and then their ideas sparks another idea. It's just so galvanizing. It's so exciting. And I just, I, I love working with people and which is really strange because I, I like being alone, <laughs> but uh, I really enjoy working with people. And I really enjoy when we are faced with a problem or an unexpected occurrence when everyone gets together and are uh, collectively exercising solution-based thinking. That is, I, I can't even put into words how powerful that is. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, and I want to talk about one night in Miami, but I saw a, um, a YouTube of, uh, actually it was a, it might've been a Zoom call between you and the four actors uh, that played various parts in One Night in Miami. And one of the things as you're talking about this just now that occurs to me is when you add people who are really creative and smart and open into a mix, the, the, as, as an idea, as a scene, as a story starts to evolve and these creative minds are feeding these thoughts into the pot, and you're synthesizing it, right, as the director. That's your job to, like, make sense of all that. But the energy and the creativity and all of that that bubbles into something that we end up enjoying as a finished product, it's just a really dynamic process. And um, I, I, I just really, really appreciate it. So thank you for breaking it down a little bit. Thank you. Well, thank you for breaking it down even further. I mean, I think what a lot of people fail to realize they ask actors or people, well, what makes you want to work with this person for the first time? Or what made you want to choose this story or what? I, I, I honestly think, you know, great artists just want to be a part of great art. So it doesn't matter if it was the first song that someone's written or the first script that they've written or the first thing that they've directed or the first thing that they've acted in. You know, yes, experience comes in so many different levels, but even though one person may have more experience than the other, they're a great artist. The inexperienced person is a great artist and the experienced person is a great artist. The thing that they have in common is that they want to do great art. Yeah. And, and we as the audience are the beneficiaries of that. So again, you know, thank you. So, you know, I, I really, truly loved one night in Miami and then reading about some of the some of the thought processes that you went through in considering the project um, reinforced for me what I loved so much about it. And the screenplay, first of all, by Kemp, Kemp Powers was just so dynamic. And you said I think you said somewhere along the line, I, I read that you said it jumped off. It was on the page for you when, when you got it. But, you know, Rising to the challenge of portraying icons, you know, we're not talking about four guys who have like some, you know, anonymity here. These guys are icons. Um, and it mostly took place in one hotel room. So for you making your theatrical debut as a director, um, you know, I can't imagine that there's a that's a there's a question you haven't been asked but I did want to read something that you said and then just kind of get you to flow with it if, if you would. So you said, I didn't want to fail the legacies 
of these men, meeting Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, Cassius Clay, and my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz's father, Malcolm X. He said, I felt like I knew these men. I saw my son in these conversations. I saw my father in these conversations. It was on the page when I read Kemp Power's script. I just felt like what Kemp wrote was so beautiful. If I were a man, I would want to play one of those roles. I wanted to be a part of telling a story that every black man I know and love can see a bit of himself in that story. That's it, Regina. That 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 was it. Yeah, I mean that you know that what was it? I mean, the, the, it's fortunate and unfortunate that the things that those men were experiencing at that time are the same things that our men are experiencing now and the same thing that their fathers were experiencing before them and so on. But in spite of all that, those men still managed to um, love and to find a way to become fearless when they were having fearful moments. I feel like with those four men, as you pointed out, that we look at them like gods and we don't think about, they shed tears, they have fears, they um, are husbands, fathers, brothers. And, and we just look at them as just the poster on our wall. And what Kemp was able to do is allow, through his words, allow us to see them as men first, you know, humanize them in a way that uh, I don't think we get the opportunity to see that often when it comes to our men being portrayed. But these are the men that we know. And I'm not saying that that's everyone's experience, but it is my experience. It is the experience that most of the women that are in my life have had. And one thing that I felt was really interesting about all four of the icons, the people that I actually were had a relationship with, while I never met any of them except for Jim Brown, were all women. They were their daughters, their granddaughters. And the thing that was so, when speaking to every single one of the daughters or granddaughters, the thing that was the same for all of them is the regard they had for their grandfather or father, the delicate way they speak about their legacies, the very assertive way at times they speak about their legacies. And that actually brought me closer to them. And I don't know that it would have, I would have received it the same way if it were maybe a male member. I, I don't, I think it was a familiarity that I, I, I saw uh, or that I felt when I was speaking to all of those women. And, you know, I didn't really discover that <laughs> actually until after I finished shooting. I did, and, and, and it was present along the way because they would all, they all uh, checked in with me, you know, once while I was shooting, not 
to check in to see if this is going like this or like that, but checking in with me to see how I was doing, how Regina was doing. And that's just something that women, we do for those things that are precious to us. So I felt like their fathers are precious to them, but I felt kind of a protection from them as I was on this journey to actually, and, and the, the irony is protection from the, like the, they, they gave me that light that felt like, you know, we, we've got you without ever saying those words, but they, they were sharing that light for a person that was probably putting them in one of the most vulnerable places, you know, that they can be put into, you know, these, uh, especially with um, uh, Malcolm and, and, and Ali, um, you know, people have been telling the, their stories or portraying them for quite some time. And I would imagine that every single time they get that call, uh, and I know for sure from speaking to uh, one of the daughters, they get that call. There's a certain bit of angst that comes up. Like, what is this going to be? What more do they want from my father? What more do they want from me? And um, I hope I felt that they knew that I wasn't looking for I, my reach out to them was to let them know that my intention is to honor the legacy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I felt that they received it. And that, that was my intention. And, you know, here's the thing when it comes to intentions, sometimes the intention isn't received as intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, you can't really control that. But um, I, I, I hope in this case it was. Well, sometimes the intention isn't received or achieved, but, you know, in this case, you know, you did that, Regina, and whether you were conscious of it as you were filming or just landed somewhere in your subconscious, there was a safety net, but around this that made it feel like you were going to be in good hands during this little journey in this room. But what also landed for me, and I don't know that I processed this real time, and maybe it happened afterwards, was the juxtaposition of the iconic status of these men who I loved. I mean, each one of them for different reasons. And in movies so often, you know, the, the, the leading man has the absolute right line at just the right time. And the woman has the right comeback. And it's the repartee is like, damn, I wish I could talk like that, you know, and go back and forth. But they were vulnerable in that room. And whether or not those words were the words they spoke, the sentiment was that, Look, man, these these heroic figures that you know and love, they had their moments too. Absolutely. Absolutely. We forget about that whenever we're talking about people that are larger than life because we we call them larger than life. We re- we refer to them as larger than life and and we forget about that that before anything else you're human. And so we should allow them the grace to be that whether they're still with us or not. So let me leap to a very human moment that uh, that you had in a very high profile, um, maybe one of the highest, most spotlighted 
uh, events is the uh, the Academy Awards. And at the 93rd Academy Awards this past year, you know, you were uh, the host and also a nominee. And just thinking back to how we were all feeling at the time. Now, the Academy Awards normally take place earlier in the year. And because of COVID, they had been pushed later into the year and they happened to fall two days after the Derek Chauvin trial and the, the verdict actually uh, was announced. And, um, you know, it was we're used to the pageantry and the audience and the full house and the, you know, and it was different. It was you, you know, you on a stage and scattered tables and social distancing and could have been easily awkward, you know, but you stepped out there, you looked beautiful, um, lovely gown on and you grabbed the mic and you might have said a few things first. But what came what I picked up on and uh, it's probably been repeated often, but I'll, I'll read it again here. You said, I have to be honest. If things had gone differently in Minneapolis, I might have had to trade in my heels for marching boots. You go on to say, I know a lot of you at home want to reach for your remote when you feel Hollywood is preaching to you. But as the mother of a black son, I know the fear that so many live and no amount of fame or fortune changes that. I mean, given that platform and that moment, I mean... I think I read somewhere where you didn't have very long to prepare. Did you know exactly, Regina, what you wanted to say when you walked out there? How, how did that? How did that come to you? Those that that sentiment, those words. Well, I did not know that. That is, I knew I was presenting. I knew the categories that I was presenting. I was told maybe two days before that my categories were going to be at the top of show, and they normally. And it may have been more than two days. Normally, those categories aren't at the top of show. So I thought that odd, but, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, I blame everything on COVID. So I <laughs> I just, you know, okay, they'll be at the top of the show. And then two days before, I get a call from Steven Soderbergh, and he wants to talk to me about opening the show. So that kind of struck me as odd because literally we're at the, maybe at that point, the 40 hour mark before the show starts. And so we had a conversation and he said that he wanted to open the show and he wanted the sentiment of what everyone has been feeling to be expressed at the opening of the show so we can get that out of the way, but not lose the pageantry, if you will, of the night. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the it's the kind of the biggest awards, award of all the awards. That I think it's probably watched even more internationally than the music awards, that particular awards show. So I, I said, okay. And then he said, and I don't think anyone else can do that but you. And I said, oh, well, no pressure, huh, Steve? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I sat there in the room when we were over Zoom and just kind of had to collect myself to, um, you know, take it in what he was saying. And then firstly, I always go to the place of, well, who dropped out before you asking me <laughs> about that? So... I think I went on and asked that question <laughs> and he said, absolutely not. And he went on to tell me in like a 
quickly why he felt like um, it was uh, that that I was the only one that could do it. So and then at that point, I kind of felt like, well, all right. I kind of took on the, a Shirley Chisholm thing. Okay, well, then if not me, then who? So all right, let's do it. So then it just kind of went to um, back and forth uh, working on the speech 12 hours before. And luckily, um, I have a, a really good friend who, um, you know, that they had writers uh that were um, already uh, writers for the Academy's three Black women. There was a, a bunch of writers, but there were three Black women. And I can't remember all of their names. I just know one was Dream Hampton. And I, and I know Dream because I've known Dream prior to. But um, a, a friend of mine who knows me very well, uh, uh, her husband and I worked together. She was able to help me because we were going to like, I don't know, it may have been almost up to like midnight right before the awards going back and forth. And she was really able to help me distill all of the things that wanted to say so that they can be quick sound bites and and not because I, I can be long winded. I can I can go on and on trying to find my 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 point or make sure I'm getting my message across or my my thought across. And and she was really Aaron really helped me distill the the information and the words so that we can accomplish expressing what a lot of us are feeling. Everyone's not a black mother, so everyone doesn't feel that way. But as a black mother with what was going on, there was no way that I could be on that stage and not speak to that because it was all so present. It was all like, you know, you know how it is. Unfortunately, we're going through this every month or so, but you feel it right here in your throat, the anger. And and how can I express that? eloquently and elegantly. So that was the result of there's the, the again the, they I've given an example of when all hands are on deck that are operating for a common goal the results usually are successful. Yeah, but you know you remind me of like a, a chef to some degree because you know every everybody's you know doing their thing and putting their little spin on it but the chef at the end of the day has to go more terror, yeah. you know, more. <laughs> so you had to, you know, you had to synthesize all of that information, the moment, the the stage, the opportunity and mom and, you know, and, and make that land. And uh, it, it was beautiful as a black father of a black son. I can tell you it, it certainly resonated with me. So so thank you. And um, speaking of sons, uh, I watched your acceptance speech at the 2015 Emmys, winning Outstanding Supporting Actress. And you brought your son as your date. And I have to tell you, Regina, the video and look on his face when they announced you won. I, I mean, as I say it now, it like, it, you know, it, it, it really warms me. And um, during your acceptance speech, uh, you put your hand on your heart. And uh, you spoke to your son who was seated. Uh, I think he was in the front row. I don't know. It was a, he had a great seat, no matter, no matter where. But I think it was the front row. And you said, the fact that I get to share this night with you, the best date in the house, 
you make being a mother my greatest accomplishment. I mean, that t- his pride, your joy, the moment of you two together. I mean, it, it you know, it, it just, it hit me. You remember that night? I do. I, I got a little emotional thinking about it because he's, you know, he's grown so much since then. You know, he's, he's a different young, I mean, he's just saying, you know, your core, you know, willing, hopefully never gets, turns to coal, but he's a different young man now. And I still really like my son and he still really likes me. And obviously, of course, you love your child. That goes without saying, but that I like him and I enjoy spending time with him. It makes me feel like I've done something right. You know, Um, that he still at 25 years old, sometimes, you know, we'll have conversations and he still shocks me, the things that he still shares with me. And I, I know that not every parent has that. And even though sometimes I'm clutching my pearls inside, I'm also thinking, oh, thank you, God, for, for choosing us to have a relationship where we trust each other. That's, that's fantastic. You know, when I, when I first met you, you were married to Ian's dad, Ian Sr., and uh, though you're no longer together, no longer married, you found a way to successfully co-parent. And I just want to give a shout out to Ian Sr. You know, he was always real cool towards me. And one of those guys I always liked seeing walk through the door during the 90s at, at Georgia on Melrose. I always liked seeing Ian coming, man. He had that, that great smile, as your son does. I mean, and, you know, he gets that from both of, both of you. Um, but to raise a young man with the job you have meant staying local, I would imagine, a lot and turning down some work that would have had you away from home. But I think you've mentioned that you've seen some of the result of, you know, parents that, that had that had to maybe choose to to leave home and, and you know, the impact that it had on their kids' lives. But you made that sacrifice, Regina, and, and it's just heartwarming to see. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think it's important. To, to, I'm glad that you did bring up Ian Sr. because, you know, when you're divorced, especially when you um, when your children or child is at a younger age, people quickly say, you know, you're a single mother. You know, yes, I may have been the main provider, but um, not without help. I was, my son's father was not not in his life. You know, he was in his life. And you know, when we did get a divorce, if we did not have children, Ian would have moved back to New York. But because we have a son, it, and it probably would have been an easier way for him to go, to go back to New York. This is uh, not where he's from, L.A. But, you know, California has this thing, you know, I don't know about other states, but the child is born here. You have to stay here unless both of you guys agree that your child can move to another state or city. So he 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 stayed here and w- w- without, you know, a blink of an eye. Now the thing about it is, yes, that's what you're supposed to do as a parent, but we all know that, you know, real life doesn't always work that way. So we learn. <laughs> um, you know, the the 90s while turbulent in LA, I moved to LA in 89. But there were also like some really great times in the 90s. I remember really fondly. And the late and oh so great John Singleton, Boys in the Hood, Friday, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, which, by the way, a few scenes were shot 
at Georgia. Regina, you've been in some cult classics, but uh, there was a good time to be in L.A. during the 90s, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the, uh, I just crack up when I hear my son's generation, you know, refer to 90s as old school. <laughs> I'm like, wow. OK. But yet they're always trying to recreate the the, the 90s had enough of a individuality that of the old schools to the, the, the younger generation, that is the one that sticks with them. That is the one that they um, are trying to duplicate uh, feeling-wise. And I think when I say that I'm speaking uh, probably more for Black kids in this generation, after the 90s, we went through a long time of not having those boys in the hoods, mm -hmm. those do the right things, menace to society. We had, you know, the 90s, we had Moesha. I mean, th there were so many different shows and And the movies. music that was evolving music, during that time. Yeah, they, they were all connected. And then they went away. So I think that, that's, that there's a gap. There's like... You know, maybe a movie here and there, maybe a show there and here. And so I think that, you know, this generation feels that Martin, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, all of these things, all of these shows are shows that are airing now and are people's favorite shows now because they can feel that synergy that was happening in the 90s and that, you know, that Chuck Dism of it all, you know, the, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, the, the, the yeah. Again, and we popped that off in like say '86, '87, '88, '89, mm -hmm. and we went into the '90s with it. Like what? So before I let you go, you mentioned uh, the Shirley Chisholm, and uh, just wanted to know if there's you know anything that you wanted to share with us about when that gets started, or or you know how excited you might be to 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 oh. play this magnificent woman. Oh, Brad, it's starting. It's it's starting now. Uh, we start shooting in six weeks. So I'm in full on Shirley study mode. So uh, it's been, I'm, I'm terrified and excited all in the same breath. And I imagine that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> Sounds like the right place. Regina King, Get back to work. You can't just sit around here and talk all day, you know. So please go back to work in all seriousness. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and it's great to see you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. So here we go with uh, my dear friend, longtime sister, Ambassador Shabazz. We're going to talk a little bit about this discussion with Miss Regina King. How about Regina King? Well, just, I mean, what can one say? She's indeed uh, just like a super house. You know, many of us have, of a certain age, have watched her grow up before our eyes, you know, in television and eventually film. And I'm just delighted that the dimension of her spectrum, uh, her artistic spectrum is being acknowledged and lauded. And she's a woman that people uh, go after, ask questions. 
She has decisions to make. That's the load that she has to endure now, but she gets to do that. And she's certainly a young lady with lots of integrity and chooses her uh, her yeses wisely. You know, and when you were talking about that powerful batting average, no matter what the sport of all of her accomplishments at, at a young age, um, when when we were growing up, you know, such as the likes of a Sydney Poitier, it was hard to come by to see us standing on a stage accepting the yeses of our contributions. And um, so it's just really wonderful to uh, listen to her. Uh, steady, poised. She's very mindful about what she's going to talk about. You know, uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that she says a birthday with Martin Luther King. So she's steady and intentional, you know, um, just really wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I felt the same way. You know, what, what, st what struck me when you talk about the dimension, you know, of her character, of her personality, when, when I asked her to name her most memorable live musical performance, and she chose Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. And I thought about that. And then this is the sister that was all sister with hoop earrings and, and giving you that <laughs> South Central, you know, Duran yeah. Duran. I mean, that's just, just the, the broad spectrum that oh, yeah. would be, you know, that, that speaks long. to her. All day long, just limitless, you know, um, knowing how, when I'm speaking to her, her conversations are not just about the industry. It includes her mom, it includes her son, it includes her her sister, along mm. with all of the other scopes, the issues that happened in 2020, um, the human being she is, the woman she is, um, what roles she gets to play civically. Um, and I would imagine that's with food tastes and, and music tastes and having a range of friends and being open to experience, you know, things through their eyes. That's what's really amazing about her, her generation of artists. Um, she's just not on lockdown. I mean, she's preservist, but not on lockdown as it when we talk about growth and, and exploration. And, and even her favorite food, when she said that she leans in the direction, you know, of Asian cuisine and specifically Thai. And I started thinking about when I was in Los Angeles and one of my favorite restaurants was a Thai restaurant and it's just flavorful. We used to say there must be somebody black in the kitchen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was the joke, right? Because it wasn't right. like it was just typical. There certainly was a fusion of flavors. So you didn't really need to add condiments. That was the thing, you know, who's burning in that kitchen where you can taste all of the seasonings, you know, and I used to just get the Tom Kakai soup, you know, which mm -hmm. also had like a coconut in the base. People weren't cooking mm -hmm. with coconut, you know, in the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s and, you know, in a chicken satay, you know, and so on and so on. Even the option of rices or curries being red curry, green curry, yellow curry, you know, people had not introduced in terms of the Asian persuasion of cuisine, they had not shared much about what was Thai cuisine. And so we were just, we thought maybe it was like Yul Brenner from the King of Siam, you know, just food <laughs> in the what, what, does, what does food mean? I mean, we're learning that now when we're tasting things, no matter 
what the old perceptions were. We're now learning about the range, the culture, the, the seasonings, the herbs, the preparation, the heartbeat. You know, it's like when hug is in a food. <laughs> yeah, you, you make know. me think of the expression, oh, he put his foot in it, but she put his foot in it. <laughs> when, when, well, it when the seasoning it. is just right, yeah, somebody's foot was in it. So let, let me ask you, um, Regina, very delicately, and I think um, rightfully so, respectfully so, in her concern with how icons are portrayed, your dad, Muhammad Ali, um, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, in One Night in Miami, there's a, there's a sensitivity that she obviously brought to that experience. How does that land for you? I know she spoke to you a bit leading up to it, but when you when you hear someone who is uh, who really wants to take the care to make sure that they're honoring this person's, um, you know, that, how, how does that, how does that land for you? That, you know, for, there's a number of ways. I've lived with this a long time, you know, while many people are leaving us now and got to grow old enough. My father is gone 58 years soon. And that's a long time to leave, to live with um, the, story being told by someone else as opposed to him being here and part of that authorship. What all of us, my family and many others, what we appreciate is when you at least ask. That's It's really that simple. It's the effort. You don't have to get it perfect. We know you can't get it perfect. That We're not looking for perfect. We first just appreciate the respect of inquiry. And so she certainly did that. And she knew I could feel it. All of us could feel her sensitivity and the awkwardness and wanting to do it, but also having to manage it based on what the industry's boundaries and capacities and everything were. So we supported her integrity. We supported that, you know, um, and I know as she's living these journeys, these explorations, even the effort, um, her um, doing Shirley Chisholm. And I had a conversation with her about Shirley Chisholm. First of all, I love the fact that that's where she was going. That was of interest. The thing becomes the cut and paste Shirley Chisholm that people talk about over the last decades is not Shirley Chisholm. That's the cut and paste and how, what an opportunity to really tell layers of a human story based on how the person actually lived and not based on a headline. And so. Well, that's exactly what I was getting to because, you know, in the case of, um, you know, we, we talked about this, she and I a little bit um, with your dad, you know, you we all have seen many times now the clips of him where he's powerfully speaking and he's, you know, the, the, those moments that he was just so, um, electric and, and charismatic and, and, you know, just dynamic, but there was the other side of him as a human being. And that's where I felt the movie tried to go, where they tried to, to show certain moments of uncertainty, certain moments of not having exactly the right answer in that particular moment where you had to step back and you had to breathe and think for a second. Did you get that as well? Well, it's contrived. I mean, so that's mm -hmm. so the areas you have to think in 1964, if you've lived long enough, you know where the certainties were. So mm -hmm. just like now at 2022, we are not uncertain about what was unveiled in 2020. So depending on I the effort to do so, yes, I appreciated um, the fact that 
Malcolm was human. And she and I talked about that. And I really appreciated all of that, you know, little nuances and characteristics, which were great. Um, but there are certain, when you have a chron chronology of events that take place at a certain time, and 1964 was very pivotal in America. So my father wasn't living with indecision in 1964. 1964 was a very um, significant shift public shift but the the decisions had long been in existence for about three or four years so those are those things that when you live the life and you really know the timing you're aware of and i don't mind artistic license as long as it doesn't um skew the direction i i you know i live because i'm in the industry and i'm also uh a creative i get that and i respect it um very much it just happens that in some of these cases, either it's directly attached to my awareness and or I know the families, right? So I usually love to introduce folks to one another if they're working on things so that you're entrusted to be creative, but play with it in the realm of actuality because especially mm -hmm. for African-American stories and others notwithstanding, the generations are leaving here and that's also the loss I get to feel as each one goes. And they were part of my like lifeline and my joy and my my comfort zone. Um, I really want their stories to live. My father left the earth not knowing that people would know his name 58 years later. And so that these people that we honor, including the one she's about to do, they were just doing the right thing per their day-to-day -day lives. They had no idea we'd be studying them and valuing them. And the fact that she's about to do Shirley Chisholm, I think that is straight boss. That's just, <laughs> I cannot wait for that sister to be recognized because there's a, two generations that have, actually don't know her name. That is so true. Yeah, that's going to be a dynamic project. Yeah, yeah I can't wait for that, that as well. It's great that it's Regina King doing it. Uh, I love that of her. Her and her sister have a production company, and they're looking for things that matter. And mm. I'm I'm ecstatic by that. So while she's very busy, we periodically get a chance to touch base, and it's not project-based. It's really just sort of checking in. Um, so I really dig her and, you know, her, she's regimented, you know, um, while busy, she's just conscientious about, you know, atmospheric sensitivity, you know, meaning the company you keep or one keeps and, and how to eat, how to treat herself right. Um, her principles, I mean, she is mindfully engaged in all of those kinds of cognizances and our conversations or the questions that she poses is really based on a real outcome. It's a journey for her. I appreciate all of those things about her, in addition to the fact that she has this um, uber uh, batting average. <laughs> <laughs> that, that she does. And, um, you know, I want to just touch on before we go this, um, you know, and thank you, too, for, for the connection with Regina. It had been a while since I'd seen her, and I knew that you two were in regular touch, and, and you reached out and asked her to uh, to do Corner Table Talk, and she yeah. agreed. So, you know, thank you for that. Sure. But, you know, like Regina, Ambassador, there are so many people in your personal orbit 
um, some older than us, some our age, some younger. But folks, and I and I get to do this regularly, so I I try to never take it for granted. But who check in with you? Mm-hmm. who stay in touch with you for one reason or another to check on you, your well-being. But I often feel like a lot of it is because of what you give in a conversation, your, the, the wellness that you provide, uh, the care that you provide for all of us that are in your orbit. I just want you to, to touch on that for a second. Well, thank you for saying that. I think, um, wow, um, that's really thoughtful. Um, I'm blessed that I come from a household where that listening component was characteristic of the house. Both my father was a great listener. My mother was instructive. (laughs) Um, She was a guiding hand, but my father was an amazing listener. And so was my uncle and the people that came around. I got to witness adult people hearing one another and exchanging with one another and not talking over one another. And so with being able to trust being open and hearing people as they are. And I like positive outcomes, you know, in ways if I have a, a, a role I can play, I don't even have to agree with you. If one is on a journey or exploration or trying to experience a something constructive, I'm on their side for that, that journey. And I don't say yes, if I don't mean yes, because I'm actually so, um, honest with myself that I could never fudge it <laughs> if I didn't want to go along with it. But I some, most of the times get out of the way so I can experience it as the one I'm talking with is experiencing it so that I, I can navigate based on his or her truth. And for the most part, I'm just really on the quiet, reclusive side. So I think when you're a person that's kind of hermity, the you're in touch with your inner thoughts, the temperature is really high for me. I can feel things as if it's present. Um, I could see outcomes as if as if they are present. And so it's been my comfort to be able to be in those places. What I have to realize, though, is that I'm never in the space of receiving the debris of that journey. Mm-hmm. Because as I age, my buoyancy is it's not, <laughs> it's not the same. So it's really being mindful of of how you choose your company, how do you spend your time, things that we always heard growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think when a person wants to do right, be right, live right, um, what a joy that is for me to see that. Words to live by and the art of listening, I think is uh, something that uh, I'm definitely gonna allow to, to seep into my brain. The, the unselfishness, I think, that you uh, that you exhibit when you indulge a person who's talking to you and you and you hear their words and you give them back thoughtful analysis based on what you heard. I think it's just so valuable and you do that really well. So well, thank, thank you. you, dear friend. You do that as well. I listened to you on the corner table talk and just based on your opening, I and watching the the glowing faces of people rediscover their bio through your heart filled words is also part of that. It's what you all did when people showed up at the cellar, whether they had money. I don't know how many tabs y'all had to cover, (laughs) but y'all said yes to folks coming in the door. And I remember as a kid, I used to always see that sign, you know, in different establishments that said, you know, reserve, reserve the right to, what is the, how does it end? We reserve the right to say no. To refuse service. And I never knew what that meant because certainly, I was always around people that 
were welcoming and certainly yeah. you all were always that. And so while I only experienced one restaurant with your dad and quite a few with you, seemed like all kinds of folks were coming in. Right? <laughs> well, you read that right. <laughs> and, and, and having a seat, you know, they may not come yeah. back, but they get they get to at least come in once, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so yeah. I think we come from that circle of people where uh, hospitality and, and, and listening is part of the DNA. Yeah, thankfully. Well, Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. I love the way you move. Keep moving just like that. Thank you. And just come on by, get a ticket. <laughs> move along with me. Yeah, of course. We certainly will. I'll see you soon. All righty. Bye-bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.